Hello, welcome back to another episode. So today we'll finally grapple with McLuhan's understanding of causality, cause and effect. And unlike the Tetrad, I think this is a great apotheosis to the series. There's lots of really cool stuff to dig into here, and it's something I can intuitively get a little bit more than the Tetrad. I think we should start off talking about the concept of technological determinism. McLuhan is often called a technological determinist, and he's called this mostly by people who seek to dismiss him. The accusation of technological determinism always seems to be a pejorative, always in the tone of, ew, he's a technological determinist, don't listen to him. I think Elizabeth Eisenstein either calls him that or implies that he is one. Technological determinism is essentially the view that history is driven by technology and technological change. There are different formulations of it, and the question of human will always comes up, the question of human agency. Like, do we not have free will at all? Are we merely pawns with the illusion of choice and free will? Automatons only acting in certain ways because of how technology works on us? These questions and others are debated. Like, what exactly is meant by technological determinism? For now, let's just say that technological determinism is a view of history that highlights technological causes with social effects. Seeing, seeing technological change as the primary way that history moves. And as I mentioned, it seems to me that this is a term almost always used pejoratively. Nobody that I've ever heard of seems to self-identify as a technological determinist, but many people accuse others of being technological determinists. I think it's seen as reductive, as erasing the human, as not believing in human agency and free will, and minimizing the impacts of things like the changes in the natural environment, politics, economics, history. I mean, I guess it can pretty much minimize anything that isn't the impact of technology, right? Robert Logan, a McLuhan defender, makes the point that most or all of the major modern scientific figures are determinists. Newton, Darwin, isn't anybody who comes up with a scientific law a determinist in some sense? I'm not sure about that because I think the problem people have with determinism isn't that a ball always falls in the same way in gravity if it has the same initial conditions, or that we figured out how every ant larva will grow. It's how it relates to human choices and moral decisions and stuff. Like, a completely physically determined universe means that Hitler couldn't have acted otherwise, which kind of takes the blame away from him, which is the kind of thing that freaks people out. But it is interesting that other realms of inquiry are allowed to be a lot more deterministic than technology studies. Like, it seems that often, whenever someone talks about the effects of a technology, they're accused of being a technological determinist, usually by someone who already doesn't like them. If that's what we mean by technological determinism, anybody who argues that there's a relationship between new technological forms and new social forms, or the flow of history, or something similar, then sure, McLuhan is a technological determinist. But like, wouldn't that be weird if a new technology diffuses throughout society and there's no major societal effects? That makes no sense to me. Like, surely the internet has led to some societal effects, right? And played a major role in history? Like, I don't even know what that worldview looks like. So that's a, that's a dumb version of technological determinism that's out there. But I think there are some more intelligent versions, like... Worrying about an overemphasizing of technology, making technology the driving force of human history, can erase other things like economics and politics and stuff like that. Not everyone thinks McLuhan is a technological determinist. Certainly not McLuhan scholars, but others as well. Arthur Croker's Technology in the Canadian Mind, for example, 
looks at McLuhan alongside two other Canadian figures of technology study. Croker sees George Grant as a technological determinist, Harold Innes as a technological realist, and McLuhan as a technological optimist. McLuhan repeatedly talks about the maelstrom of technology, referencing that Edgar Allan Poe story. The idea that our awareness of how technology acts upon us will free us from being unconsciously swept along by it. So maybe he's a soft technological determinist? Most of history is driven by technology, but there's a way out? There is, however, another interpretation. It's one of McLuhan's most exciting ideas, and also one of his trickiest. And again, we must return to the Greeks. One Greek in particular, Aristotle. Marshall McLuhan, writing with his son Eric in his final book, Laws of Media, notes that our view of history has a bias to it. I've talked about this before, but it was such a long time ago that I'll briefly go over it again. When we're not relying on, like, archaeology, we're relying on the writings of figures of the time, right? Or previous historians, like Herodotus. That means that history largely comes to us from the viewpoint of highly literate people, people with a visual bias. Marshall and Eric allege that this has led to some confusion, particularly with the Greeks at the dawn of phonetic writing. They say that a few concepts from that era have multiple formulations or definitions, some that make more sense to people thinking in more oral or audile tactile modes, and some making more sense to those in visual modes. And since people have become more visually biased throughout history, and after print and stuff, that means that usually the visually biased definitions take precedence, and the orally biased definitions are just seen as imperfect definitions, reaching towards the visually biased definition that makes more sense to the visually biased scholar. There are three terms that they highlight that have these multiple definitions. We went over one of them many episodes ago, um, I think in episode 1.6. The three terms they mention are logos, mimesis, and formal cause. Just to briefly reiterate their thoughts on logos, since I talked about it such a long time ago. Logos is one of the Greek words for word, or utterance. The other word is mythos, and logos is the older term. McLuhan say that before writing, naming things was not a neutral act. It was not a simple matching the name to the thing. Instead, names had power. They were connected to the thing. Naming was not matching, it was making. It was not labeling, it was creating. To the oral followers of the Old Testament, God saying, let there be light, was not God narrating his action of creating light, it was an integral part of the creation of light. Not only was the word made flesh, but the word makes flesh. Another way to say this is that literacy and other media led to a highly visual culture that separated the content of words from the form of words, and disregarded the latter. Mimesis means representing something in the real world, in art or literature, as realistically as possible. Or at least that's what it means to us, visually biased people. Picasso's cubism is not mimesis. His painting of a horse doesn't really look that similar to a horse in reality, but a photorealistic painting of a horse is mimesis. However, the McLuhan's allege that in more orally biased societies, mimesis is how people learn. Oral or audile tactile societies, according to them, have fewer abstract concepts than highly literate, highly visual societies. They don't have the same objectivity and detachment, and are therefore, with mimesis, able to kind of combine themselves with the thing they're trying to know, and let the thing affect their experience. It's a little hard to get your mind around. Remember Havelock says that writing separates the knower from the known? Without writing, or without a strong influence of writing, the McLuhan's say, learning was trying to combine the learner with what was to be learned. 
An example would be reciting a poem that details historical events, reciting it after someone who knows the poem well, and through the recital, identifying with the main character, kind of merging with the main character, and learning of his exploits and the events of the poem as though you are the main character experiencing it, not a detached observer watching the main character experience it. Honestly, the McLuhan's talk about mimesis was also a little hard for me to wrap my mind around. So the McLuhan's alleged that the definition of logos as label, not creation, and the definition of mimesis as representation, not learning tool, matching, not making, predominated throughout history due to the increasing visual bias. But the term that concerns us, and the question about whether McLuhan is a technological determinist, is formal cause. To give you a taste of where we're heading, McLuhan once said that, quote, prior to visual space, formal cause coincided with logos as a figure ground concern with the thing, structurally inclusive of its whole pattern of side effects on the ground of users, unquote. So formal cause is related to logos, the more orally biased understanding of logos. There's a whole book published on McLuhan and formal cause, called Media and Formal Cause, edited by Eric McLuhan. It's a few essays by Marshall and one by Eric, trying to get to the bottom of this whole causality business. Last episode, we talked about the four laws of media, one of them being retrieval, and we can say that the McLuhans retrieve the concept of formal causality from the ancients and alter it to fit their present. Formal cause comes from Aristotle, as I mentioned. When the average person today thinks of cause and effect, in general, I think they seem to think about it sequentially. This thing happened because that thing happened, and that thing happened because that other thing happened. People today generally also seem to think about it as one thing, right? Cause and effect. But Aristotle divided cause and effect into four different types, four types of causes. The four causes are material, formal, efficient, and final. And I'm just going to go over them now quickly, but obviously, don't worry if you don't uh, understand them all right now. We'll, we'll be talking about them for the rest of the episode. So first off, material cause. This one's pretty easy. It's that out of which. Um, what the effect is made of. So for example, the material cause of a window is glass and let's say wood for the frame. If there was no such thing as glass and wood, the window wouldn't exist. It couldn't exist. So glass and wood are one cause of the window, the material cause. This is pretty weird, right? Most people would give you a weird look if uh, they pointed at a log cabin and were like, how did that come about? And you just said wood, the material cause. A good way to think about material cause is in terms of potential. If we turn back time to right before the log cabin was built, uh, we just see a big pile of logs. The pile of logs has the potential to be a cabin, just like it has the potential to be many other things. But if we didn't have any material with the potential to be a cabin, then there'd be no way to make a cabin, right? Anyways, formal cause. Um, the second one I mentioned is obviously something we'll explore throughout this episode. But just for an idea of what the average person, like not the McLuhans, means by it, like if you look at the Wikipedia page for Aristotle, um, it means the form or the account of what it is to be. So with the window example, the shape of the window is kinda, maybe, the formal cause. This is the basic definition. We're going to analyze it, 
add to it, poke holes in it, flip it around. Pop it. Twist it. Pop it. If you can't keep up, twist it. You lose. Uh, sorry, sorry, trying to delete it. Um, formal cause is often described using the metaphor of a blueprint. Something we'll see that the McLuhans criticize as, you know, being a reflection of a highly visual culture. Efficient cause is the type of cause that most people think of when they think of causality nowadays. It's the primary source of the change or rest. For example, the person who made the window and all their actions. The efficient cause of one nail going into the window is a person striking it with a hammer. It's sequential, it's like billiard balls, that's a common metaphor. X thing happened, which led to Y thing happening, which led to Z thing happening. Think of how the form of that is tied to the things we talked about with writing and printing, you know, sequentiality, things like that. And finally, there's the final cause. It's the end, that for the sake of which a thing is done. For example, the need to let light into a room while remaining sheltered from the elements is a final cause of the window, maybe. Or maybe the shape of the window is actually the final cause, and we have to reformulate the formal cause. No pun intended. When most people think of cause and effect, they just think of efficient cause. The linear, billiard balls hitting each other kind of cause and effect. The cause of this ball moving is that other ball that hit it. The cause of that other ball moving is that woman who rolled it onto the billiard table. McLuhan points to this as an outgrowth of our highly visual, phonetic, and typographical culture, obsessed with sequences and connections. Yeah, I, th I think lots of how we understand the world is based on these sequences of cause and effect. Of course, we realize that these sequential chains can intersect, or multiple things can cause one thing, the chains can diverge, but I think overall most people think of cause and effect in a pretty linear, sequential, billiard ball way. And something to mention before we go on, one potential confusion when trying to understand Aristotle's four causes is that the ancient Greek word that is translated into English as cause can be used in a bit of a broader way in the ancient Greek. It can mean not just causing the thing, but being responsible for a thing, guilty of a thing, the explanation or reason for a thing. So one of the reasons that Aristotle's causes might seem weird to us is translation issues, but there are some other reasons too. And one other thing to mention, causes aren't things that happen to nature, they are nature itself. The way lots of people describe these causes implies that they are like external to reality. The only time I've seen Marshall McLuhan mention Elizabeth Eisenstein is in a letter he wrote to the editor of a magazine who published a review of Eisenstein's book. McLuhan says that Eisenstein's work is concerned with efficient cause, while he is concerned with formal cause. In a letter in 1969, McLuhan's colleague Jacques Maritain appears to have pointed McLuhan in the direction of investigating formal cause, responding to McLuhan's letter where McLuhan wondered how environments can cause changes in society and cognition, in other words, like what the mechanism is. McLuhan's understanding of formal cause is really closely related to his understanding of technological environments. As we've talked about in his later writings, McLuhan starts to see all existing technologies and human artifacts as creating an environment, the ground, and any new technology alters the entire environment. It's not just individual technologies that act upon individuals and societies. It's all the technologies added together, and how they interrelate, and how they act upon our sensorium. 
to ease ourselves into thinking about environments and causality, let's think about environments as the term is more commonly used, with natural environments, and a narrative where a change in the environment has disastrous non-environmental effects. There's this idea that climate change is a threat multiplier that will increase social and political conflict and instability. The example that's often pointed to is one that's still debated, I think, but let's talk about it anyways. The Syrian Civil War. I'm going to go over a typical narrative of the war's beginnings. And, sorry, maybe I should have chosen a more lighthearted example. I guess Syria was on my mind when I wrote this for some reason. And of course, it's a lot more complicated. The point here is not to thoroughly explain the origins of the Syrian Civil War, but rather to use this example as a way to start thinking about narratives and causality and how causality can relate to environments. So in 2007, there's a drought in Syria, hitting the region known as the Jazeera pretty hard. This area consists of the northeastern provinces of Raqqa, Hasaka, and Deir Ezzor. Sorry for the pronunciation. An area that's over a third of Syria's overall territory, and also the region that produces the majority of its wheat. When the drought hit, the crop started failing. This crop failure coincided with certain state policies that are complicated, but essentially, the wells that could have alleviated the situation had either not been managed well enough and couldn't be used, or were too expensive for the average person to use. For the next few years, many rural Syrians had to move to the cities, including cities in the Jazeera. These cities were already burdened, facing similar policies of austerity, like in the countryside, and the idea is that this influx of people, and the resulting mixing of classes, poverty, ethnicities, beliefs, and understanding of religion exacerbated the social conflicts that already existed, kind of setting the stage for a civil war, leading to some teenage boys famously writing, the people want to topple the regime on a wall in the city of Dara, a slogan borrowed from other revolting Middle Eastern countries leading to the boys' arrest, leading to a peaceful protest by their parents and sympathizers asking for their release, leading to the state forces opening fire upon them. The rest of Syria heard about this egregious act, and protests and violence arose in other areas of the country. So let's apply the billiard ball sequential, linear, efficient cause to this hypothesized chain of events. Human industry leads to increased carbon in the atmosphere, the greenhouse effect leads to an increase in temperature, making drought more likely. Drought occurs in Syria. Those dependent on agriculture can't depend on it. Many of them move into the cities. They mix with people already living in the cities, while often impoverished. It seems like a fairly common thing that rural people tend to be more religious and traditional and less cosmopolitan. So maybe their ideas about religion and ethnicity led to an increase in sectarianism. Plus, since they move due to necessity, not desire, Many of them are not wealthy, leading to an increase of the economically precarious in the cities. If people are more economically precarious, maybe that makes them more willing to protest, more willing to put one's life on the line for change, since one's life is already on the line, living in the status quo. And then, this leads to civil war. It's funny, proponents of this theory often say, no, these things didn't cause the war necessarily, but they did set the stage for it. They're saying that the effect of the drought created an environment where war was more likely. You can think all the way back to Jack Goody and how he talked about how writing was a necessary but not sufficient cause for various things like the modus tollens, for example. And let's take a closer look at the chain of efficient cause that I just outlined. It's pretty linear and sequential, but 
it does that by erasing a lot, or containing much more than it might appear in most links of this chain of causality. If the greenhouse effect leads to an increase in temperature, how does that lead to a drought in a specific area? The global climate is incredibly complex, and how it interacts with more localized environments is also incredibly complex. I said the increase in temperature made a drought more likely, as though these were two billiard balls. The greenhouse effect pushes the increase in temperature billiard ball, which hits the drought in Syria billiard ball. This is maybe a great example of McLuhan's idea that we often confuse rationality with the merely uniform, continuous, and linear. I didn't really explain how the increase in global temperature causes a drought in Syria and not Belgium. Maybe you caught it, maybe you're smarter than me, but when I read that the first time and I wasn't thinking about McLuhan, I kind of just brushed by it. Yeah, that makes sense. Droughts are hot. Increase in global temperature makes things hotter. Eh, whatever, moving on. But first of all, drought isn't heat, it's lack of rain. And secondly, run into the environment again. I didn't say an increase in global temperature caused the drought in Syria. I said it made drought more likely. The increase in global temperature is not a billiard ball rolling toward another billiard ball labeled drought. It's a changing of the entire environment that sets the stage for the drought. It's a changing of the billiard table, to extend that metaphor. Thirdly, it's important to note that I'm not saying that an increase in global temperature didn't cause the Syrian drought. I'm just saying that my summary of the efficient cause is not nearly sufficient to explain how those two events are linked. How do we apply efficient cause to actually explain this? Like, what would the billiard balls be? Would we have to reduce the atmosphere of Syria, or even the atmosphere of the whole Earth, to atoms and even smaller particles, and picture these particles as little billiard balls interacting with and affecting all the other atoms? And only then, with this complex web of particle interaction, would we understand how an increase in temperature would lead to a drought in Syria? I mean, even if we got a supercomputer or found a god with that ability, just looking at atoms and other particles on an individual level wouldn't cut it. And not just because atomic-sized particles don't interact like bowling balls do. Things get a little weird at that super small level, right? But it wouldn't do also because looking at the world in this way, dividing it up into its smallest components, what's called reductionism, ignores things like emergent properties, complexity, chaos, and nonlinearity. We'll talk about this a lot more later in the episode, but um, let's just look at an example related to what we've been discussing, atmosphere. The high school chemistry understanding of gases is that gases are composed of particles moving randomly. To be in a gaseous state, the particles must have a certain average level of energy um, to be moving at a certain speed, otherwise the matter would be in a liquid or solid state. If the, if the particles had a lower average level of energy. We can measure aspects of gas, like temperature or pressure, but these are all emergent properties. They are, they're a result of the whole system of the gas we're looking at. You can't measure temperature or pressure by just looking at one molecule of the gas. The chemistry way of understanding temperature is not hot or cold. It's how fast the molecules are moving, how much energy they have. Within any matter, though, the molecules aren't all moving at the same speed. It's the average speed of the molecules that gives us temperature. That's why water evaporates even when it isn't boiling, if it's just a puddle outside. When water is boiling, it changes from liquid water to gaseous steam, 
as the average energy of the molecules increases, but if water is just sitting outside in a puddle at 20 degrees Celsius, uh, there's still evaporation, because while the average energy of the molecules is still not high enough to change the state of matter to gas, that's only the average. There are individual molecules that have a higher energy and become gas and evaporate. Well, at least that's a high school chemistry explanation of it. I'm sure it's a lot more complicated. <laughs> but just think about how complex atmospheric systems are, or how complex the entire atmosphere of the Earth is. There must be many more aspects of complexity and emergent properties than you find in a smaller amount of gas. So it seems like even if we had access to a supercomputer, efficient cause at the particle level still wouldn't explain how the drought in Syria occurred due to climate change. The supercomputer would need to understand how the smallest, the smallest bits that we can divide the atmosphere into act in large groups. I'm guessing that scientists who study climate name these emergent properties, they look for similarities in structure and process between similar occurrences, they try to translate nonlinear processes into approximate linear processes, um, they use computers to simulate the nonlinear processes, <laughs> that sort of thing, to get a handle on all these complex aspects of the atmosphere and climate. Something like that. My point is that efficient causality might not be sufficient in explaining how the Syrian drought was caused by an increase in global temperature. The same thing goes for the other links in that causal chain. I'm not going to go through them, but think about how complex human interaction and society is, and then think about my linear way of describing how these rural people moving into the cities led to the civil war. I, kept, I keep saying led to, but I already pointed out that's not true. They shifted the environment. They didn't cause, they made more likely, they set the stage. I said that the rural agricultural people moving into cities increased existing sectarian tensions, and the economy, the, the economic precariousness that the drought caused probably contributed to the beginnings of the uprising and conflict. First of all, think about how those few steps in the causal chain can be broken down into so many more smaller chains. We can think of everyone in those Syrian cities as billiard balls, causing small-scale effects that lead to larger effects. But something to think about is reducing human society to its composite parts, humans, the same thing as reducing the atmosphere to gas molecules. Do we ignore or not see some things? Do groups of people, or groups of people as well as all the things that make up a particular society, have emergent properties? or nonlinear complex processes. Now, with all that in mind, let's return to McLuhan and technology. McLuhan thinks that efficient causality is an incomplete way of looking at the world and how it changes. He thinks when people use efficient causality only, they're just matching effects with causes. And this leads to only a partial understanding of the processes in reality. It isn't a way to fully understand these processes, because if you match an effect with a cause, you might ignore other causes, more subtle causes, or you might fail to see how a totality of things can be a cause, an environment or a ground can be a cause, and also a constraint, right? Um, environments can stop certain things from even being an option in the first place. Furthermore, the linearity and efficient cause ignores things that aren't linear things that are emergent and complex, which our terms will define uh, later, more rigorously. McLuhan says, quote, ecology does not seek connections, but patterns, unquote. And as we start to unravel formal causality, 
Keep in mind this quote from Eric McLuhan, quote, Formal causality, in which coming events cast their shadows, effects, before them, is hugely mysterious. The literate mind simply can't grasp it. It is too paradoxical, unquote. Not exactly the most inspiring thing for a literate mind trying to understand it to hear, <laughs> but let's jump into the paradox. Marsh McLuhan says that Harold Innes also took an interest in formal cause. The idea that the form of a total environment or situation can cause effects. Eric McLuhan says that formal cause, the effects of these environmental processes, works out of time. Often effects precede causes. Uh, what? Effects precede causes. See, we're already, we're already deep in this paradox here. So let's look at a conventional definition of formal cause. To, to start unraveling this whole thing. From R.M. Hutchins, he says, quote, Formal cause is the pattern which directs the work. It is, in a sense, the definition or type of the thing to be made which, beginning as a plan in the artist's mind, appears at the end of the work in the transformed material as its own intrinsic form. Unquote. Hmm. So that definition starts out interestingly. Formal cause is the pattern which directs the work. Okay, okay, so it's a pattern. What's a pattern? What's necessary for a pattern? Let's take the example of 1, 4, 9, 16, 25, and so on. We can see that this is a pattern of the squares of integers, starting with 1. 1 squared equals 1, 2 squared equals 4, 3 squared equals 9, etc. We can continue this pattern after 25 pretty easily, but this doesn't work if we just give one number. 1. What's the pattern? 25. <laughs> What's the pattern? Pattern itself is an emergent property that requires multiple things, like a system or a set. It can't just be seen by looking at things atomistically, individually. I guess form is pretty similar, right? You can't tell the form of a construction of Lego by just looking at one piece of Lego in the structure. Even looking at every single piece of Lego in the structure individually wouldn't tell you anything about the form. The form is about how, the, how all the pieces interact, how they fit together, where and how they are positioned in relation to each other. So I guess form is, or is often, an emergent property. But R.M. Hutchins's definition gets a little bit less interesting. He likens formal cause to the plan in an artist's mind, the plan which eventually becomes the piece of art. Aristotle himself often used the example of an artist or an artisan when giving examples relating to his causes. But this doesn't really help us in general. Like, what's the formal cause for things in nature, for example? Like a seed turning into a tree. There's no mind that we know of with a plan for its sprouting. No blueprints. I mean, maybe maybe the, maybe the plan is kind of, uh, like, within the seed somehow. But still, I'm a little bit fuzzy on how that would work. With the example of the tree, we know what the material causes are. It's the material of the seed, the nutrients in the dirt, the water the energy from the sunlight, all the material things that combine for it to grow. We can get an idea about the efficient cause, too. I'm not going to go over it, but just imagine the steps that a biology textbook would lay out in describing the process of a plant sprouting. 
But what's the difference between the final cause and the formal cause? The final cause is the fully grown tree, right? But our definition of formal cause is the plan in the artist's mind, or a blueprint. Without an artist, with just nature, what's the formal cause? Like, wouldn't the blueprint just look like the final cause, the fully grown tree? Hmm. So what is the difference between final cause and formal cause? To get to the bottom of what exactly formal cause is, Eric McLuhan went back to Aristotle and did a very close reading in the original Greek. He noticed that Aristotle often equates form, like informal cause, with definition, and definition with logos. So think back to how the McLuhans have suggested that logos has different meanings throughout history, some with a more oral bias and some with a more visual bias. Right? I've added a bit of depth and nuance to the term logos, and we're in the process of adding depth and nuance to the notion of form, but let's look at the word definition briefly. Nowadays, definition is most often used in terms of like words and dictionaries. The definition of a word is a phrase that explains what that word means. But there are some other ways the term is used, like, like HDTV, high definition. Um, I'm just going to, funnily enough, rely on the dictionary to give the second definition of definition. <laughs> I hope that's not too confusing of a sentence. Another definition of the word definition is, quote, the degree of distinctness in outline of an object, image, or sound, especially of an image in a photograph or on a screen, unquote. Even if this isn't true etymologically, and I don't think it is, it's cool how this is kind of similar to the more oral, audile, tactile understanding of logos, right? That to define something is to make it definite, that is, make its outline distinct from the rest of reality. That would be affecting its being, creating the thing. Aristotle defines formal cause as, quote, the form or pattern i.e. the definition of the essence and the classes which include this and the parts included in the definition." Unquote. Eric McLuhan looks at the original Greek and finds that in that quote, the word translated as definition was logos. So I'll read it again with logos in the place of definition. Formal cause is the form or pattern, i.e. the logos of the essence and the classes which include this and the parts included in the logos. The form or pattern is the logos of the essence. Elsewhere, repeatedly, Aristotle similarly brings up logos and essence when explaining formal cause. At one point he says, the form is logos. Now we can bring in the figure ground probe and talk about it more. Um, this probe is deeply tied to the McLuhan's notion of formal cause. We've talked about abstracting a lot. Abstracting to the McLuhans is looking at a figure without paying any attention to the ground. According to McLuhan, the history of most of philosophy and logic and science uh, has been thinking about figures independent of their grounds. But the speed up of electronic technology means that the grounds are being changed at a much higher rate than ever before in history. The McLuhans liken formal cause to ground. Eric says, quote, Formal cause is the ground for the material, efficient, and final causes. In that sense, it contains all the other causes." Unquote. This ground can be situational or environmental. Grounds are usually hidden from us, except from artists, 
meaning those with heightened artistic perception. So normally we only see the effects of formal cause, not the cause. This is one way that the whole effects precede causes thing makes sense, since we see the effect but only become aware of the cause, the ground, in the rearview mirror at a later date. The environment is only perceptible via what McLuhan calls anti-environments, things like certain pieces of art that can affect our perception. Some of science and the humanities functions as anti-environments too. McLuhan says, and I love this, he says that the function of artists is, quote, predicting what has already happened by being the first to perceive it, unquote. Predicting what has already happened. <laughs> you can glimpse the weird ways McLuhan talks about causality here. And you can also see maybe one reason why McLuhan is confusing. Here he's mixing reality and our perception of reality. Predicting what has already happened. The predicting part refers to our perception and understanding of reality, while the already happened part refers to the actual reality, like noumena. Do, do you see what I mean? Something's happened in reality, so it's not a prediction in that sense, but people aren't aware of it. Only by, by combining the two aspects does this quasi-paradox arise, predicting what has already happened. Elsewhere in McLuhan, like his talk of spaces, visual space versus acoustic space, there's this similar mixing where you're not really sure whether he's talking about our notion of reality or reality itself. I think it's usually the former, though. Anti-environments are an important part of McLuhan's work, though. I don't think I've talked about them enough. I think this quote is a good explanation. He says, quote, One thing about which fish know exactly nothing is water, since they have no anti-environment which would enable them to perceive the element they live in. Unquote. Anti-environments are anything that heightens our senses, our awareness, to make us see our current environment, rather than just the previous environments that have been turned into figures by the current one. McLuhan loves the poet Ezra Pound's quote, where he says, artists are the antenna of the human race. Of course, McLuhan extends the notion of artist to include anybody with a heightened awareness of their senses, of the, of the technological environment. In another of McLuhan's probes, he offers a different view of the ground and causality, saying that, quote, all grounds are a totality of cumulative effects that continually gel into figures as causes, unquote. Hmm. One problem I've found with talking about cause and effect in the abstract like this is that something can be an effect of something, but also the cause of something else. So when McLuhan says that all grounds are composed of effects, I can understand that just thinking in terms of efficient causality, because everything that exists, everything that a technological environment would be made of, is the effect of some other cause. But when he says that this ground, this totality of effects, turns into figures as causes, are those causes of other effects? This gets really confusing, especially due to McLuhan's method of probing. Let's look at another quote of his about causality. He says, quote, When the time is ripe in any process, the effects as ground have preceded the cause as figures. Causality is a process pattern, exposed by discovery or imposed by invention. Unquote. So that's interesting. When the time is ripe in any process, the effects as ground have preceded the cause as figures. 
So in the Syria example, when drought forced people from rural areas to move into the cities, supposedly setting the stage for the Syrian civil war, that setting the stage, that the time is ripe, that environment in which civil war is much more possible, that's the effect of people moving into the cities from the rural areas. But the cause, the thing that set the stage, the people moving, that's only understood afterward. Is that it? Causality is a process pattern, exposed by discovery or imposed by invention. So causality isn't linear chains of cause and effect. It's a pattern that one can uncover or alter themselves. Hmm. This offers another explanation for things like perspective painting preceding print technology by a few decades. The time was ripe for a new technological environment that stressed the visual more, evidenced by the increase in experiments dealing with optics and lenses. Eric McLuhan says that, quote, Formal cause is still in our time hugely mysterious. The literate mind finds it is too paradoxical and irrational. It deals with environmental processes, and it works outside of time. The effects, those long shadows, arrive first. The causes take a little while longer. Most of the effects of any medium or innovation occur before the arrival of the innovation itself. A vortex of these effects tends, in time, to become the innovation. David Hockney's recent study, Secret Knowledge, details how Flemish and other artists of the early 15th century literally paved the way for the Gutenberg Press a decade or so later with their optical experiments. Their lenses and mirrors enabled them to explore in depth as never before precision of point of view, perspective, and chiaroscuro, greatly intensifying the visual stress they could bring to bear in their paintings and paving the way for the press. First come the effects. Unquote. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Maybe my mind is still too illiterate, but it's still a little bit out of reach for me. Elsewhere, Marshall McLuhan says, quote, Formal causality reveals itself by its effects. There's a strange paradox in this, because since the effects come from the hidden ground of situations, the effects usually appear before their causes. Unquote. So with this quote, it seems like the effects come before the causes only because we are aware of the effects first. In actual reality, the effects follow the causes, but to us it seems like the effects come first, because the ground, the cause, remains hidden. But I'm still not sure how that works with the printing press example. <sighs> Whatever the nature of grounds and figures, Eric McLuhan makes the case that in this new era of electronic technology, formal cause is vital because the grounds are altered at a much higher frequency than they have been in the past. We can also bring in the trivium, dialectic, grammar, and rhetoric. We've talked about how dialectic is for the McLuhans, the majority of Western logic and philosophy. Logic and philosophy largely work by this abstraction, about, by thinking about figures minus their ground. Logic and philosophy are heavily tied to visual bias and visual space. Remember Marshall McLuhan's idea that we often confuse mere linearity and continuity with rationality. This is dialectic in his terminology, most logical or philosophical thinking. Continuity, linearity, and also abstracting figures from the ground, and only dealing with these abstracted figures, something that's been going on since language. But writing, especially combined with phoneticism and print, increases visual stress and everything that goes along with it. 
This is pretty much the history of modern philosophy and logic and physics until the electronic age, only looking at efficient causes. But the McLuhans think that at electronic speeds, the technological environments, the grounds, they change at a much higher frequency, making us more aware of the ground along with figure. They also think that electronic technology allows for more pattern thinking, less reductionistic thinking. The changing physics of the 20th century is a good example of the changing of perception, the emerging awareness of grounds and environments, but so is anthropology. Anthropology emerged in the late 19th, early 20th century, and it relies on something called holism. This means that anthropologists aren't supposed to go to a culture and just study one aspect. They don't travel to Papua New Guinea, meet a specific culture, attend a wedding, take notes, and then get on a return flight to write a paper about weddings in that culture. The holistic view means that if your focus is wedding ceremonies of this culture, of Papua New Guinea, you still need to learn as many aspects as you can about the culture, and you try to see how the wedding ceremonies fit into it. Even though we split society up into categories, these categories affect each other, in some cultures more than others, because many others don't divide up things in the same way we do. Anthropologists are encouraged to be aware of the ground, the environment, right? The whole culture is the ground of the wedding. You can see this in other areas of 20th century academic inquiry too, like gestalt psychology, which is where McLuhan borrows the figure ground metaphor from. Structuralism too, the idea that was popular in the early to mid 20th century in a variety of fields. The idea that things that humans experience and do is structured by a system that arises in a society or culture, uh, that you can't look at aspects of human experience or action individually, only in relation to this ground, the structure that's behind various aspects of life. McLuhan looks at these branches of study a bit and critiques them for still being under the spell of visual space somewhat. Another good example um, that's more connected to electronic technology is weather prediction, meteorology. Meteorology is only possible with communication at electronic speeds. If you had to get weather data from a variety of places before electronic communication, like a bunch of people riding horses to you with information, the weather system would have already passed before you could predict anything. But the new speed of communication with electronic technologies, like first the telegraph, made us, and especially the new, the new figure of the meteorologist, much more aware of the ground, the atmosphere where figures like rain or tornadoes emerge from. Eric McLuhan says that formal cause is tied to rhetoric and grammar and opposed to dialectic. That's why philosophers and logicians have corrupted what Aristotle meant by formal cause. Think about the way I introduced formal cause, using the metaphor of a blueprint. But blueprints are highly visual. Eric McLuhan says that, quote, the blueprint metaphor gave dialecticians, philosophers, what they needed to make formal cause behave rationally. Unquote. Going back to the five canons of rhetoric, the blueprint metaphor makes people see formal cause as the arrangement part of rhetoric. But Eric McLuhan thinks that formal cause is closer to two of the other canons of rhetoric, style and invention, or creation. He says, quote, at bottom, formal cause is coercive, not passive. It makes the thing, as it were. It coerces the thing into being, and it makes it be thus, unquote. I want to emphasize something else from that first quote. The blueprint metaphor gave dialecticians, philosophers, what they needed to make formal cause behave rationally. 
Eric McClune is calling formal cause irrational. Now, my interpretation of this is that formal cause is not tied to visual space. It doesn't rely on continuity or sequence. He's using rational to mean what Marshall McLuhan said we often confuse for rational. But maybe he's making a deeper point that reality itself is irrational. That would be interesting. But if we understand him in the former way, the way I think he's meaning it, what aspects of formal cause are irrational? Well, it operates outside of chronological, sequential time. It is not understood by logic, which relies on connection, but by analogy, which relies on discontinuity. And finally, formal cause can never become a figure that can be abstracted by logic and philosophy. It's always the ground. However, in another point, uh, another of his probes, Eric McLuhan offers up a slight revision of formal cause as ground. He says that it could also be conceived of as the interval between figure and ground. I mentioned grounds changing at a higher rate in the electronic age. This idea of the formal cause as interval or interface between figure and ground means that it is at the same time causing the figure and the ground and their changes. Both the figure and ground are active, interfacing, relating with each other. And whether formal cause is ground or the interval between figure and ground, it still can never be abstracted by logic and philosophy, the dialectic. It's always, you know, connected to ground, however, however it's connected. So all this is getting, ironically, a little abstract. So let's look at an example. Jane Jacobs, a famous um, scholar on cities and stuff, haven't read her. She says that most people, scholars and laymen, assume that cities are built upon a rural base. That is, the rural economies are the efficient cause of the city. But Jacobs thinks otherwise. She thinks, to put it in McLuhan's terms, that the city is the formal cause of the rural economies. That might sound weird, because obviously before there were cities, there were smaller rural communities. But the thinking is this. What the city consumes creates what the countryside produces. And Jacobs was writing in the mid-20th century, so imagine the statement before the current level of globalization. The economy of the city determines what products have more or less demand, and then the nearby rural economies are reconfigured by the city economy to supply those demands. The city is the formal cause of rural economies. Very, like, I love, I love flips like that. I love um, new reads on things. In Understanding Media, McLuhan references David Hume's thoughts on efficient causality. David Hume was the famous 18th century philosopher, a key figure in the Scottish Enlightenment. He was also a big-time skeptic. And one of the things he was skeptical about was efficient cause and effect itself. I'm not going to go in depth into his arguments, but he's roughly saying that cause and effect is us noticing that one event is always following another. But that, that only really tells us that those two events always appear together. It says nothing about cause. This is tied to Hume's problem of induction, which is skeptical about our ability to generalize anything from particular instances even if there are a lot of particular instances. McLuhan takes this skepticism about efficient cause to heart, claiming that a sequence of events is merely a sequence of events, not a causal chain of events. He has a nice way of putting this. He says, quote, nothing follows from following except change, end quote. Another great quote of his is that, quote, 
effects are perceived, whereas causes are conceived. Unquote. Remember how McLuhan prefers percepts over concepts? McLuhan adds that efficient sequential cause is a very literate or typographical way of thinking about things, but the relative instantaneousness of electronic technology is throwing sequence out the window and allowing people to see other, deeper forms of cause and effect. He has a line that he repeats a lot, and I'm not really sure what it means. He says that with electronic technology, instead of asking which came first, the chicken or the egg, it suddenly seemed that a chicken was an egg's idea for getting more eggs. Make of that what you will. I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to explain that one. But an instance of this deeper cause and effect he talks about is 20th century physics and how they started thinking about a lot of things in terms of fields, something McLuhan sees as analogous to grounds. So electronic technology accelerates the changing of grounds to the McLuhans. It makes people start to think and perceive differently, making them aware of grounds and other forms of causality, among other things. As I already mentioned, the extent and instantaneousness of the telegraph led to an understanding of meteorology, since people in various areas could communicate the current state of the weather, and trends could start to be seen, and weather could start to be predicted. People were beginning to be aware not of billiard ball efficient causality, but the causality of environments and large-scale patterns and fields of force. Think about the development of ecology, too, in the 20th century. Certain individuals also started to understand causality in a way similar to the McLuhans. Eric McLuhan points to a passage from Heidegger, the 20th century German philosopher, saying that Heidegger was working to resurrect what Aristotle was getting at with formal cause with his own invented term, inframing. Similarly, around the same time, T.S. Eliot was grasping towards an understanding of formal cause with his essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent. This is a very famous essay, probably some of you have read it before. You know that phrase, that cliché, we stand on the shoulders of giants? It's saying that most individual acts of creation depend on previous acts of creation. It'd be very hard to paint a good picture if you've never seen a painting before. This, This essay is kind of about that, about the relation between the individual artist and all the preceding artists and art, the tradition. T.S. Eliot says that usually when the two are compared, the individual and the tradition, it's to try to figure out if or how the individual differed from tradition. Like, Jane Austen is an important figure in literature because, unlike her predecessors, unlike the tradition that preceded her, she used something called free indirect discourse, where third-person narration is not neutral, it's not objective, Instead, it's mingled with the thoughts or feelings of the main character. It's biased. We try to see what's new with a work of art or artist compared to the tradition. But T.S. Eliot thinks that tradition is much more important than merely a measure of novelty. He has an electronic view of history, not seeing history as purely chronological, purely sequential. He says that tradition involves the existence of the past in the present. He says, quote, the historical sense compels a man to write not merely with his own generation in his bones, but with a feeling that the whole of the literature of Europe, from Homer, and within it the whole of the literature of his own country, has a simultaneous existence and composes a simultaneous order, unquote. He alleges that the historical sense involves not just timelessness, not just time, 
but time and timelessness together. Remember how the McLuhans allege that formal cause happens outside of time? Elliot goes on to say that artists don't have an abstract meaning. If you remove the artist from the tradition somehow, and try to just view them alone, they have no value, they have no significance. The significance or meaning of art or an artist comes from how he relates to all the art and artists in the tradition. We can think back to that McLuhan quote, the meaning of meaning is relationship. We can also view it in another of McLuhan's terms. The individual art or artist is the figure, and the tradition is the ground. But the individual can also be viewed as the ground of the tradition. The individual is the formal cause of the tradition because, as Eliot says, quote, what happens when a new work of art is created is something that happens simultaneously to all the works of art which preceded it. The existing monuments form an ideal order among themselves, which is modified by the introduction of the new, the really new, work of art among them. The existing order is complete before the new work arrives, for order to persist after the supervention of novelty, the whole existing order must be, if ever so slightly, altered, and so the relations, proportions, values of each work of art toward the whole are readjusted." Unquote. Now, that is very interesting, isn't it? I think this is what Eric McLuhan meant by saying that the formal cause is the interval between figure and ground. The figure, the individual, can exist without the ground, the tradition, but the tradition is altered, it becomes something new due to the figure. It's like how the McLuhans think that every newly invented human technology and artifact alters the entire technological environment, even if it's very slightly. Another thing to note is that in his essay, Eliot is talking about truly novel art. It's the truly new that reconfigures the old, not just any piece of art. Also, the art must enter the tradition, someone painting or writing by themselves, to be seen or read by nobody or very few, will probably not affect the tradition. Alright, so we're nowhere near done talking about formal cause yet, but I think this is a good place to end the episode. Um, I'll talk to you next time, but I want to finish by reading a few related lines from T.S. Eliot. Eliot has a poem called The Four Quartets that starts with the lines, quote, Time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Unquote. I'll see you next time.